so hey, tonight in our Are You the One uh, series, we are talking about marrying the one. Marrying the one. Um, so this is, um, this is the part of the story where like I feel really old because I'm like the only married person in the room. Not the only, there's, there's like a couple more back there, okay? And so um, we're, uh, you know, we're, th- there's a couple of you that are real close to getting married. Yeah, amen. And you're like fired up about that. And, and the cool thing is, is that uh, statistically, about 98% of you in the room will in fact get married. Um, so like two of you, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like, we're going to try to help you out, okay? Because um, <laughs> we want for 100% of you to be married, to be happily married, to love marriage, to have a great, awesome, fulfilling marriage, to have a passionate marriage. Like all those things that we dream about when we think about finding the one that we want to spend the rest of our lives with. Listen, tonight, take some good notes because we're going to help you find the one and marry the one. That's going to help you be all of those awesome, amazing things. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so I'm just curious though. Uh, if you like, you are not dating someone. Like you are single. Okay? If that's you, throw a hand up so I can see who it is I'm talking to. Okay? Keep it up for just a minute because there's people still raising. Okay. Um, keep it up. Take a look around. <laughs> Take a look. There you go. Um, right after this tonight. Um, all of these individuals will be in the back building eating dinner. It's like a free date, dude. You can't go wrong, okay? So um, remedy yourselves of this situation you find yourself in. And, um, you know, hey, there's some great ones in here. I'm just saying, it, you know, perfect opportunity. Um, but, hey, before you travel down this road of finding a spouse and entering into marriage with the one, I want to do my best to prepare you tonight. To cast some vision for what marriage really is. To prepare you for this great journey that we call marriage. Because right now, the biblical concept of marriage is getting harder and harder to find. Would you agree with that? Proof, proof, uh, proof's in the pudding here. Let me, let me, I do this every year, and um, this is not to shame you or anything like this. I'm about to raise my hand with you. But how many of you, your parents are not together right now? It's quite a few of us, isn't it? Um, that is a sobering fact to think that about half of us in this room have to look really, really hard to find a biblical example of a great marriage. And for the other half of you that, that didn't raise your hand, um, unfortunately what I know is that about half of you have seen a marriage, but it's probably not a great, awesome, fulfilling marriage, at least statistically speaking. So that means that about one in four of us maybe have a great example of what marriage is really supposed to be. You see, and tonight, we kind of want to fix that. Because if we're not careful, we'll, we'll end up falling into traps and believing lies that will hinder us from mar- having the marriage that we hope to have one day. See, here's the thing. Um, we got any artists in the room? Like people that can actually draw. Like you, you like draw, you draw well, okay? I envy you because... If it's not like a square building, I don't draw it, okay? Um, I took an art class at ASU my freshman year. I thought they would teach me to draw. No, they just threw stuff out there and said, draw it. And when I sucked, they gave me a bad grade. I was like, this, I dropped the class. I was like, you're not teaching me anything. I'm just going to fail this course. And so I got out. Um, so, but if I were to approach one of you who actually have some artistic ability and say, hey, um, I need your help. I need you to draw me a picture that, that I'm really excited about. And you would say, okay, great. A picture of what? <laughs> I'd say, um, a house. A house that I will be just stoked about having a picture, like the house that, I, my dream house. You say, okay, great. Um, what kind of house are we talking about? Like, you know, one story, two story, like beach house, mountain home, you know, big house, little. Well, I like big houses, but I like little electrical bills, okay? So make that work, right? Yeah, okay, well, okay, cool. Um, so, like, are we talking beach house or mountain home? Both. I want bo- one story or two story? Both. Let's just have it all, right? Like, and, and so like, if I were to say, okay, I need you to paint this picture for me, right? You would go, you would just get frustrated and be like, I'm an artist and you suck at telling me what you want. So um, I have no idea what to hand you right now. 
And unfortunately, if, we were to, if I were to ask you to paint me a picture or describe the perfect marriage for me, unfortunately, some of you would give answers that are kind of like that. I want a one-story and a two-story marriage. And then like, you know what? I kind of want, you know, a big house and a little house all together in my marriage picture. And see, the, the, the reason that that happens is because culturally there are myths that are out there. Listen, you know what a myth is? A myth is a lie that you empower by believing. Okay? Think about that for a minute. A myth is a lie that you empower by believing. And culturally, there are some myths out there that say you can have the mountain home on a Florida beach kind of marriage. But when we really begin to look at it, we figure out that doesn't seem to work. Logically, it doesn't make sense. You know what? Maybe in some arena you could really twist some things around and hopefully make somebody believe that that could actually work. But it just doesn't seem to actually work in the real world. And so tonight we're going to talk about some real world marriage vision. And how we're going to do that is to dispel some of the cultural myths about marriage. In fact, we're going to take a look at three marriage myths tonight. And these are things that if you believe um, and empower in your life, you are in danger of hurting your future marriage. And the first myth we're going to go into tonight is this. Myth number one, follow your heart. When it comes to a great marriage, you just need to follow your heart. And, And this is the idea that if you'll just be led by your emotional heart, you will find love. It's waiting right around the corner. And see, when you hear people say this, what they're really saying is you should pursue those things that stir up a passion within us, right? You should pursue those things that you're passionate about, those things that get stirred up inside of you. And and passionate love is something that we all want. So it kind of makes sense that passion should help point us in the right direction when it comes to marriage. And I would agree with you on that, but how many of you know that there are passions within you that if you don't practice self-control over You'll just end up hurt, in jail, or you could end up hurting others. That's why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. He says, hey, listen, now to the unmarried and the widows, hey, all the single people in the house, I say this, it is good for you to stay unmarried as I do. And so, okay, understand Paul's heart here. He is writing to an early church and he's saying, guys, we are the first generation of the Christian church. Let's live missionally. Let's be about spreading the gospel. Let's, as I am, Paul was a missionary. He was about spreading the gospel. He's saying, if that's you, if you've been given that gift of singleness is what he calls it, go do that thing with all of your heart. Go pursue that thing. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Passion is not a bad thing. Listen, I'm willing to bet that in a room full of young adults, I don't have to give you an expository breakdown of what Paul is trying to communicate here, right? Listen, burn with passion. We know what this feels like because occasionally these passions inside of us erupt into a volcano that's really hard to contain. But here's the thing, just so you know. The passions that exist inside of you are a good thing. And they actually relate back to when God initially, in Genesis, very first man, very first woman, got together. God blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. And it means exactly what you think it means. The passions inside of you are there for a reason. It is the reason that the population on planet Earth continues to grow constantly. These passions are a good thing. But if you're not careful, those passions, especially in the wrong context can lead us towards destructive behaviors. You see, if you just followed your heart down every passionate journey that it directed you towards, you would end up broke. Because you would end up buying too much and too many of something that you were just passionate about in the moment. Listen, if this were me, um, I would own about a million Chevrolet trucks that were built in the 1950s. Because about once a week, my heart gets passionate about wanting to buy an old truck. I see one driving down the road, and I'm like, man, I wonder if it's for sale. 
It doesn't matter. I shouldn't buy it because I'm going to be broke if I buy every truck that I pass by on the road. So I can't follow those passions. Follow those passions, the passions of your heart, and you will end up exhausted. Because you simply can't do everything that you feel like doing. This is why some of you struggled so much with grades last semester. You've yet to figure out how to say no to certain passions so you can say yes to wise responsibilities. You might end up fat. (laughs) If I eat everything that I am inclined to eat, I'm going to gain a lot of weight. Now, check this one out. You might end up a BFF. Now, let me explain this. I cannot tell you how many people I talk to that think it's okay to spread themselves thin relationally with members of the opposite sex. We talked a few weeks ago about how many young ladies will say, I just don't get along with other women. Which as a father brings a a concern into my heart about how you were going to connect with, um, with my daughter. Or with my daughter-in-law one day, right? So these, these friendship kind of relationships that exist amongst the same sex, they, these need to be whole and complete. Like th- these kind of relationships need to exist. And here's why. If I'm talking about my wife and I, I don't want my wife confiding in another man. In fact, if Ashley and I get into a fight and I need to get out of the house for a while and go hang out with a friend, she should not have to worry about the friend that I'm going to hang out with. She should not have to worry about the friend that I'm going to hang out with maybe um, being tempted to tempt me to cheat on the wife that I'm feeling disconnected and angry with. Does that make sense? So, and I should not have to worry about her in that situation either. Listen, there is not a dude on the face of the earth <laughs> that I trust with my wife in this tender state that she's in in a hard time. That's my job. You understand? So th- this whole idea of like, like just being BFFs with like all these boyfriends or girlfriends that you've got lying around, this doesn't work in marriage. It just doesn't work in marriage. And the truth is, like, I got to thinking about this. We were talking about this in staff a couple weeks ago. The only reason you grew up thinking that relationships with the same sex was not a good thing was because your previous relationships with the same sex were broken. See, some of you probably grew up in junior high and high school with this immature view of relationships, And inside of a high school, it's easy for girls to be catty. It's easy for guys to talk and locker room talk and all this kind of stuff. And you can feel very disconnected from your gender. Christ has never allowed that for us as Christians. See, if half of the world's population is female... Christ never said it was okay for me to not get along with half of the world's population. In fact, he said, if you are Christian, the love of Christ ought to flow out of you. And listen, amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ especially, there should be such a genuine love and relationship that the world on the outside looks in and sees the love of Christ. So if you have an issue loving and being friends with people that are, that are of the same gender... Begin to love them with the love of Christ. And we are no longer allowed to say, girls are hard to get along with. I just don't get along with guys as well as I get along with girls. That's a skewed view of love and a skewed view of Christ's love that should be inside of you. You're saying that because of a broken past relationship. Let me encourage you, do not allow your broken past to influence your future. It doesn't have to be that way. If you continue down this passionate journey that your heart sends you on, last thing is you'll end up training for divorce. Because some of you, like, you would end up with a different boyfriend or girlfriend like every other week, okay? Like, you just get passionate about somebody and you just go pursue that individual like there is no tomorrow. 
you're simply being driven by the passions that Paul is talking about. And listen, man, I get it, okay? I've been a college freshman. I've been a college freshman that was not serving the Lord. And I remember thinking, she's hot, (laughs) right? And I remember feeling very passionately about how hot she was, right? And I know she's hot, but listen, hell is hotter. The passions inside of us must be contained. The passions inside of us that Paul is talking about are, it is important that we keep them in the right context. You can't just date because she's hot. A date is an interview. When we're talking marriage, tonight is about marriage, right? When we're talking marriage, I'm ready to marry the one. A date is not a game, it's an interview. It's not something that we play around with. The goal is to get married. In the dating game, here's the problem. It creates fake relationships based on fake commitments and fake outcomes. That's the dating game. I'm going to commit to you until somebody else better comes along. Otherwise, I'd put a ring on it. That's the dating game. When we play these games, and listen, this... Like, this comes off in so many ways, right? Like, this is, this is playing hard to get when you're dating. Not if you want to be married. This is not texting somebody back. This is, you know, flirting to get attention. And, and you're just playing these games, this dating game, and really what you're doing is you're preparing yourself for divorce. Because the passions inside of you are just running rampant and you have not contained them. Committing to someone until your passions burn for someone else is practicing for divorce. So here's the thing. It's not follow your heart. It's guard your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. It's not follow your heart. It's guard your heart. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us that the heart is deceptive above all things. And And how true is that? How many times have you felt passionately about something or someone that turned out to be totally untrustworthy? And you felt slighted at the end because you were passionate about it. Your heart was directing you towards that thing or that person. Last year, um, there was a blogger in London that decided to make his backyard shed the top-rated restaurant in London. Did anybody hear about this? Yeah? This is crazy, okay? Um, you can go look it up after service. It, listen, this dude created the, the TripAdvisor accounts, and, and he wanted to be the top-rated uh, restaurant in London on TripAdvisor. Creates the accounts. He starts posting reviews for this fake restaurant with a real phone number. And before long, he starts getting lots and lots of calls for reservations. And, and he would just answer the phone this way. He would say, listen, we're booked for months. You can't eat here. And he would hang up. And people would like go nuts and just want to eat there even more, right? And so what happens? Like people, because, you know, they want, they're, they're passionate about the thing and like they want to look cool and all this. They even start posting fake reviews saying that they've eaten at the restaurant and that it was awesome because they want to look good to their friends. You guys are crazy, right? So we've actually got a couple pictures that he posted in his reviews. Check out this first one. Um, so fried egg. No, go, uh, I'm sorry. Go to the fried egg one. Food one. Yeah, fried egg. That looks pretty, like, looks like a delicacy, right? So this is the picture that he throws up there. He's like, hey, this is what we're serving for breakfast today. Go out to the next picture. Show me the zoomed out picture. It's of his foot with a fried egg on his foot. People are rating his pictures like crazy, right? Go to the next one, the the, the first one he showed, okay? Whatever this delicacy is, um, show us what it's actually made out of. Um, Shaving cream and... (laughs) Bleach tablets. (laughs) And this guy's like posting these kind of pictures of this awesome delicacy, you know, style food in his restaurant. People are dying to get into the restaurant. And literally, in just a short time, the shed is what he called it. It's literally his backyard shed, okay? The shed actually became the number one rated restaurant in one of the world's largest cities on one of the world's most trusted sites, just for fun, 
after all this hits, like literally there was like somewhat like 625,000 requests in one day for his restaurant. So TripAdvisor actually calls him requesting information, right? And he's trying to avoid them, right? And so, it, but, but he actually, for fun, he decides to start taking reservations one day. He brings a few guests in. He goes to the store. He buys food. He actually goes to a chicken farmer and rents the farmer and the chickens and brings them into the courtyard of the shed, his backyard, right? And so, he's, and so like he brings people in blindfolded, sets them down at a table. There's all these chickens running around. And the chef walks out and says, hey, pick your chicken that you want me to cook for you tonight. <laughs> And so they have to pick their chicken. And one of the guests just looks absolutely astonished. Like she's just blown away. And, she, and, and he's like, you know, and she, she tells the chef, listen, um, we found you as the number one rated vegan restaurant on TripAdvisor. What are you doing serving chicken? She's like heartbroken. They were busted, right? They lost their number one spot. And this dude wrote an entire blog about it. <clears throat> How many of you know that there are plenty of things in this world that aren't what they seem? And it works that way with people too, doesn't it? Because the truth is, when I'm putting myself out there, hoping to be your one, I'm putting my best foot forward. I want you to like me. I want you to see the best side of me. I want the best chance that I've got at scoring a hottie. So I'm going to throw myself out there in the best way possible. And the truth is, when that's happening, like, you could have, you could be passionate about a thousand people on the face of the earth. If you really wanted to and you really seeked it out, you, there, there's a thousand people on the face of the earth that you could have chemistry with. But chemistry's not the goal, is it? We're talking about marriage. We're not talking about chemistry. We're talking about a great marriage. So if you want a great marriage, you got to ask yourself some real questions that go much deeper than just how your heart feels about the person that you're considering. Maybe right now. Because when you get past the feels and you give it a little time maybe, you end up finding out who they really are, how compatible you guys really are. Do your, does your vision for life match up? Does your calling match up? I can be passionate about you, but listen, if I'm passionate about Jesus, and Jesus has called me to go be a missionary in Nigeria, and you're not excited at all about Nigeria... Those passions don't correlate, do they? And now we have to make a decision. See, but here's the thing. Okay, um, here's how this should work. You end up pursuing the Lord with all of your heart. And like you're running this race after Jesus. You are pursuing Jesus with everything within you. You go on a spring break missions trip and you are working hard for Jesus. And all of a sudden you look over and there's somebody next to you working hard for Jesus. Running the same race you're running. Running in the same direction that you're running. At the speed that you're running and you go, hey. Hey, good looking. Let's run this race together. For life. <clears throat> Those are passions worth paying attention to. The heart can be deceptive, can it? But listen, you find, men, you find yourself a godly woman that is chasing after Jesus more than she's chasing after somebody else. Ladies, find yourself that man that loves Jesus more than he loves impressing you. Now we've got something to talk about. Now we're talking marriage. <clears throat> Myth number two. Myth number two is this. Practice makes perfect. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Practice makes perfect. This is one of the cultural myths that so many young people believe today. And it's that cohabitation or living together before you're married is normal. And that it is a good way to protect yourself from a divorce. And what you don't realize is that this concept has really only been around for about 100 years. You see, before the 1920s, people didn't hook up, shack up, and pack up nearly as much as they do today. It didn't occur this way. See, growing up in today's society, you grew up believing that 
abortion, no-fault divorce, and cohabitation have always been around. And that people always waited until they were 28 to get married because, well, 28 makes you mature. And you're done with college. Listen, I would say that age represents maturity like Facebook represents the real you. Right? Like, because here's the thing. I've married people in their early 20s that were far more prepared to be married than people that I've married in their 40s. Do you understand? Like... The age is not the, is not the issue. Your maturity in the matter is the issue. And, and I get it, man. With all, these, like, with all these things in mind, like the fact that maybe a quarter of you actually have had a great representation of a godly marriage, like the other 75% of you, you're trying to protect yourself. I get it. Listen, you wouldn't buy a car before you take it for a test drive, Right? How do we know if we're compatible, if we don't live together and sleep together? I'm just trying to protect myself from ending up what I, in, in a bad relationship. It's the take a test drive before buying the car, try on the pair of shoes before you buy them, sample the ice cream before you fill your cup, right? So this idea works great in Baskin-Robbins. It works terrible in marriage. Let me, let me give you the non-Christian sociological statistics. The non-Christian debt. This is from people who are not Christians began collecting data to actually find out what, you know, what the real stats really are and literally pulled thousands of people and did more than they've done in the past. Because if you just go look at the average data, here's what it says. Uh, divorce rates in the church among Christians are the same as divorce rates outside of the church. That is actually skewed data. Because how many of you know that when I walk up to someone and say, hey, are you married? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Have you ever been divorced? Yes. That's not really an accurate representation of whether or not they're actually believing that they're a Christian and acting like a Christian are two different things, right? Belief to the point of like conviction is a very different thing. And the data doesn't show that. But there have been some guys who have actually done some really great research to find out if this thing is um, what what everybody thinks it is or, man, are we missing something in here? And here's what the non-Christian sociologists actually came up with. Cohabitation increases rates of divorce. Therefore, when you're living together trying to avoid divorce, you're actually increasing your risk for divorce. And depending on which study you look at, it increases your risk for divorce between 33 and 150% compared to those who do, not who, ca- co- who do not cohabitate. Women who cohabitate are, are, are more likely to be depressed. They're twice as likely to be abused and nine times as likely to be killed by their partner than those who do not cohabitate before marriage. I had a coach that used to say, he'd say this, Practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. The Bible would say it like this, Galatians 6, 7. Don't be deceived, God won't be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What you put in is what you get out. You put in sin, you put in evil. Don't expect for something different to come out of your marriage. Cohabitation isn't safe, it isn't good practice, and it isn't godly. And just in case you're wondering... For those of you that don't live together and don't sleep together before getting married, your self-control before marriage will grant you this. Your rates of marital happiness and satisfaction will actually be higher. Your odds of conflict are lower, and the percentage of divorce literally falls off a cliff. All the stats, Christian and non-Christian, simply point to this. God's way is still the best way. God's way is still the best way. It doesn't matter what culture is telling us, God's way is still the best way. If we're honest, God's way is not always the easiest way, right? But as I age, I recognize more and more that God's way is indeed the best way. And one of the most transformational things that happened for me in my faith, especially concerning this area, was whenever I became a father. See, I I now see God's commands, his decrees, and his conditional promises from a father's perspective. Where are my fence guys at? 
I got a couple fence pickets that I want for you guys to, uh, to help me out with. Where'd Husky go? I don't know either. Nestor, come up here. Help me out, brother. Okay. So, um, you guys know Cade, right? Well, for this, um, for this illustration, um, Cade's nickname is going to be Death. <laughs> and um, Husky over here, um, it's a good thing we got the two biggest dudes in the room. Y'all come right here and face me. Face me. Now hold these pickets up just like this. Okay? Face me. All right. We have death right here. We got destruction right here. This is Husky the Destroyer. Okay? And so here's what, here's, here's the thing. Um, God's commands, his decrees, and his conditional promises are kind of like pickets in a fence. And, and when I became a dad, um, it, it, I began to take precautionary measures for my daughters. And I have a three-year-old who, who just back in February, um, she just turned three, and she received a bicycle for her birthday that she has yet to ride. The plastic's still on the wheels. You don't know why? Because there is no fence between my sidewalk and a very busy street that cars go up and down day and night. See, I view God's commands his decrees and his conditional promises is like pickets in a fence. See, my daughter can run around in our backyard. She can jump on the trampoline. She can do that all that she wants to because I'm continually repairing pickets in my old fence to make sure that she stays in a safe area. And God has given us these commands and these decrees and these conditional promises as like this this picket fence that stands between us and death and destruction. And the problem is, if we begin to like take too many of these things down and we begin removing these pickets, what are we opening ourselves up to? Death and destruction. Hey, guys. You guys can sit down. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, just lay it down. It's fine. See, the things on the other side of that fence are death and destruction. My daughter has no idea that death and destruction exist on the other side of those pickets. But because I'm a father and because I love my daughter, I have installed pickets to keep her from things she doesn't even know she needs to be afraid of. Now, how does that strike you when I say God has said some things about how we should date and marry and how we should act towards each other? That there are some pickets that he's put up between us and something that he knows is destructive and harmful. He's given us the opportunity to pull down those pickets. But I'll tell you this, I think it breaks his heart when we remove the fences that he's put up in our lives for a very good reason. This is why last week we talked about sex and we were looking at the overall theme behind the, the love story recorded, recorded in Song of Solomon and the, the author um, mentions three times, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. And my hope tonight is that you'll recognize that God's commands and decrees and his conditional promises are, are they've been put up like a fence to protect us. Yet, here's what, here's what I get asked like all the time, okay, especially by dudes, right? Like, um, man, where's the line? Like, concerning my sexuality, like, where's the line? Where's sin, right? Like, how far can I go, you know? And, and here's the thing, that Song of Solomon would say this, it's not where's the line, but when's the time? It's not where is the line, but when is the time, and the time is in marriage. Now, here's the cool thing about marriage. All the sexual pickets come down in marriage, and death and destruction disappear. So, practice makes perfect. Listen, when you get married, you will have plenty of time to practice whatever, whenever you want with your spouse in the security of your marriage and you will have an awesome sex life if you begin to obey God's commands, decrees, and his conditional promises. 
See, if you're really concerned with this area of sexuality, if you're concerned that you're going to need to take a test drive to enjoy it, let me just say this. I've never heard a virgin say that he didn't enjoy his bride on the wedding night. Not once have I ever heard a dude say, that was terrible, never want to do that again. I've never, I've yet to find a healthy married couple that weren't sexually compatible. Listen, God gave you both the parts and the parts fit, okay? Like, it just works that way. He designed it that way. They were made to go together. And I assure you that if you'll protect your sexuality between now and the time that you get married, you'll find that the shoe fits, the car drives, and the ice cream's pretty awesome, okay? Like, fill your cup. Perfect practice makes perfect. So the right things now. Myth number three, contracts, not covenants, are the new normal. Contracts, not covenants, are the new normal. Now, think about this. We enter into contracts all the time. Like, you visit a website, and a little pop-up comes up and says, by clicking this, you agree to allow us to use cookies. And you just signed a contract saying, sure, I'll sign a contract saying, I'll use your website, and you can do whatever you want to my phone. Okay? Um, you enter into a contract when you uh, sign, uh, sign up for a credit card. You sign cell phone contracts. Listen, you update your phone. You click on their terms, right? And that's you agreeing to their contractual terms. Listen, for $82, you can buy a marriage license so that you and someone else can enter into a marriage contract. Walk right down to the Justice of the Peace and pay 82 bucks, and you yourself can have a marriage contract between you and somebody else. But contracts weren't always the way that people agreed on things. Think about this for a minute, okay? Um, Have any of you guys ever witnessed like your dad maybe dealing with someone or trying to purchase something? Maybe he's at a a car lot, right, and he's trying to make a deal on a car, and he's talking to the salesman. They agree on a price, and what do they do? They shake on it, right? I, I see this happen amongst like, you know, guys in here, and they'll be like, you know, I don't know, some guy will say something stupid like, hey, if you shave your head, I'll buy you a burger. And Well, because college students are hungry, you know. <laughs> he's like, shake on it, you know. <laughs> they shake on it, and what happens? He shaves his head, and if the dude doesn't buy him a burger, what does he say? But we shook on it. You promised. We, we had a deal. We had a contract here, right? And, and so that's kind of the idea behind this, behind a contract. And today... When people get married, too often they confuse a marriage contract with a marriage covenant. You see, a contract is put together to protect me. So that if you don't keep your end of the bargain, then I get to punish you. I get to divorce you. I get to hurt you. I get to discredit you. And ultimately, a marriage contract places two people against each other when someone breaks the rules. A covenant does just the opposite. This is why about half of American marriages end in divorce. See, the truth is, this idea is like nothing new. In fact, if you were to go back to like 500 years before Jesus, okay, in the book of Malachi, we actually see some guys who were angry with their wives and they were seeking a divorce because they weren't happy in their marriage. And God responds this way in Malachi 2, 14 and 16. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. What's he literally saying? I was there and I witnessed you say I do. The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage, what? Covenant. Are we looking at this? No? We don't have this up there? Okay. Malachi 2, 14, 16? Okay. We don't have it. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. I was the witness between you and your wife becoming one, is what God says. And right before this verse, God even tells the men that aren't happy with their wives that the reason he won't accept their offerings is because they've confused a marriage contract with a marriage covenant. 
And these men are thinking like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. I, I don't even know who she is anymore. And the women are probably thinking, I thought, I thought he would be different after we got married and nothing has changed. Listen, nothing magical happens when you put the ring on. Like you're, stu- you're still you, they're still them, and all the problems that you both brought in still get compounded on top of each other because two become one. It's just simply the way it works. With a contractual view of marriage, it's more about me than we. So because things aren't working in my favor or how I want them to, I get to break the contract. But a covenant works very differently. A covenantal view of marriage says that I'm in this for we, not me. A covenantal view of marriage says that I believed Jesus when he said in Mark 10, verses 7 through 9, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, when, when two became one and I married you, your problem became my problem. When two became one... I chose to serve you rather than be served. I chose to give instead of take. I chose to lay down my life and my desires for the betterment of our life and our desires. It's about we, not me. And the covenantal view of marriage says that when God joined us together, no one gets to separate us. And that's not just anyone outside the marriage. That is those inside the marriage do not get to separate what God has joined together. See, every time somebody enters into a marriage, here's what I hear all the time. People will call up here to the church and they'll say, hey, um, I'm looking for a pastor to marry me. I'll say, hey, great, man. Um, that, that's pretty exciting. Um, everybody that I marry has to go through premarital counseling and we talk about some godly principles before, um, before I, you know, I, I marry you. We don't really want to do that. We just want to get married, like really quickly. Like we just kind of want to, do it, you know, like, and, and my response is usually like, listen, okay, um, if, you, if you hadn't invited God into any other part of this relationship, why are you including him in your marriage vows? What's the point? You think that because um, you get up here and you stand before a pastor that all of a sudden everything's okay when we start talking about God and we haven't mentioned him yet? All the problems associated with that will disappear. It's just not the way it works. See, we got to have a proper view of marriage and how God views it. Because eventually, like in Malachi, God stands up there and says, Hey, when you stood up in that church before, before your friends and family and that pastor, I was there too. I witnessed it too. And I said what I joined together, you don't get to separate. And that goes for the husband and wife too. God's not okay with that. In fact, when Jesus was asked about divorce, he actually told everybody in the crowd, the only reason Moses gave you the option for a certificate of divorce is because you're a hard-hearted people against God's will. That's pretty harsh. But that's genuinely how God feels about this marriage covenant. It's not a contract. I no longer live for me, but I live for we. I heard a story about a young couple that just got married, and they had their first fight, and the newlywed wife called home. Her dad takes the call, and it's this long, drawn-out conversation where she's complaining to her dad about something her husband had done or something he had said, and, you know, the mom's sitting there listening to the phone call. She's eagerly waiting for the dad to finish the conversation with her daughter, and when the dad hangs up the phone, her mom asks the dad, what was that about? The dad says, well... They just had their first big fight, and she wants to come home. And mom says, what would you tell her? Dad said, I told her she was home. So when you enter into a marriage covenant, Jesus says that the first thing that happens is some leaving of the mother and father. 
and the two become one. Home is no longer with the parents. Home is the home that you're building together. Now, dad had a lot of wisdom in that moment to be able to tell his daughter, you are home. You said, I do. You made the statement, for better or for worse. This might be worse right now, but you're home. See, in covenant marriage, there's a dedication and a love that is as strong as death. In fact, where we get the proper idea of a covenant from is looking to the Bible to see the way that God speaks of a covenant in the Scriptures. And to break a covenant in the Scriptures literally meant the death penalty to the guilty party. So when we say, till death do us part, in our marriage vows, God actually takes that really seriously. It's not just a nice phrase. It's actually, he meant it. And so I, I get to explain these things when I do premarital counseling with people. And, and um, hopefully I get to marry some of you guys. And we get to have these kind of you know, great conversations about how strong the bond of marriage is. And what you're really jumping into. But a couple years ago I got invited um, to go visit a man who was in the hospital. He's actually on his deathbed in the hospital. And, um, <clears throat> and I, I go up there and I talk to him. And he's, he's, a, he's an unsaved friend of, of a friend. I, I don't know the guy, but my friend asked for me to go and talk to him. And he actually, on his deathbed, he, he's got a fiancé and he wants to get married um, to this girl before he passes away. Um, this is like his, you know, his last dying wish kind of thing. And um, I said, that's great. I'll go talk to him. And so I go and I begin to talk to him. And, and um, I said, man, listen, um, I, I'll be happy to marry you guys. But everybody I marry, I, I first tell them about my convictions concerning marriage. Because I'm not willing to allow you to stand before me as a witness and say the things that I want for you to say unless you understand what you're saying. Because you're not just entering into a contract, you're entering into a covenant. And even if you've only got a few days left, the few days that you have left should be spent in this covenant with your wife. So I begin to talk to him about just the idea that um, for better or worse means for better or worse. Richer or poorer means richer or poorer. Sickness and in health means sickness and in health. You know why? And, and like, I remember this guy, he like, he kind of starts complaining to me about his wife a little bit. And I said, why? Why do you want to marry her? Why would you want to marry a woman like that? And he kind of stops and he kind of breaks and he's like, man, I love her. And when I told him, I said, listen, um, the love that you feel for her And the commitment that you're willing to make to her is actually the same commitment that Christ made for you a long time ago. See, the the, the commitment to love has, has become a choice. It's not really based on if she can earn your love like you're choosing to love her. And, and a long time ago, about 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, chose to love you in the same exact way. And if I can paint a picture for you, I, I want you to imagine something with me for a moment that um, you're about to walk down an aisle and the, the person at the end of that aisle is actually Jesus. And he's standing there and he's actually already said, I do. He's just waiting on you to make the same kind of commitment to him. I said, that's salvation. That's the love that God offers us. And it's what he asks for us in return. A commitment of love back to him. And, and I got to lead the, that guy to the Lord that day. We, we got to say the prayer of salvation. His wife got saved in that room. But I think for the first time, Somebody had explained to him that the picture of marriage that we're given in Scripture is actually a picture of God's love for us. And Jesus, for some of you tonight, maybe you need to hear that Jesus is literally standing at the aisle and he has already made the commitment. He has already said, I do. And he has just been waiting for you 
to do your part. To say, I do. To commit to him in a very real, very loving, very honorable way. And as we talk about marriage tonight, I, I, I would say this. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life, if he is not king, if he is not the one that has forgiven you of sin and given you new life, then the love that we're talking about right now, the selfless, absolutely committed love that you want to both have for someone else and them have for you, that stems from the love of God in your heart. And you need Jesus tonight. You need to accept him as Lord and Savior. And I assure you this, ladies, Jesus will make you a better wife. Men, Jesus will make you a better husband. And one day, when he blesses you with children, you'll be a better dad. And you'll be a better mom. And you'll be able to love your kids the way you've always imagined. You'll be able to love your spouse the way you've always imagined. See, we we find it real easy to to lay our life down for the one that we love, but the question is, can you live for the one that you love? Can you honestly make it about we and not me? And can you find somebody who's willing to do the same thing? And I would say this, without the love of Christ in their heart, the answer is no. The answer is no. The perfect example that we've been given of this is God himself who gave us Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us so that we could be in relationship with him. 2,000 years ago, he died on a cross and he said, I do to every single one of you. And he's just waiting on you to do the same. The invitation tonight is this. Accept Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying like be committed to church. I'm not saying like, I'm not even asking you if you were baptized or confirmed or anything. I'm asking, do you love Jesus? And if I were to ask you to dig deep in your heart right now, would you say, That you've committed to him in the same way he's committed to you. Because when we make that kind of decision. When we make a decision to love Jesus. He becomes Lord. And he becomes Savior. And if the love. Doesn't exist inside of you. The love that you're hoping to display one day to your wife. Or to your husband. If it doesn't exist in there. Jesus is where that is found. And you need to cry out to him to begin a mighty work inside of you. The great thing about God is that when we seek him, we find him. It's scriptural. It's a promise.